0: So I was I was the account executive over this pass button kick contest with uh, Green Bay Packers, the Colts, the Bengals, and the Browns, and so it was around the minute. Chevy Avalanche.
1: The Browns is a football team.
0: <laughs> yeah, out of
1: Cleveland. Hey, I got to ask you one question: What the hell happened? Was it the Oscars or the Emmys when Steve Harvey got it wrong? He announced the wrong thing. Who did the? Who was responsible for counting that? Was it that PricewaterhouseCoopers? Coopers?
0: I think that might have been Ernst and Young. No, I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> Good answer. Welcome to Game of Crimes.
1: Hola, amigos, amigas, players, playwrights, dudes, dudettes, everything in between. Welcome back. This is going to be episode 63 of the greatest show on earth. It is Game of Crimes, and I am your host, the former trooper, the former detective, everything that Murph aspires to be. I am Morgan Wright, here literally with my partner in crime.
2: Hey, everybody, it's Murph, and if you need your tire to change, call Morgan.
1: We do a damn fine job. (laughs) Just don't get the uniform dirty. And by the way, we would have done this a little bit faster, but... uh, it's mealtime, and I had everything up on the screen, and my cats walked across my keyboard and deleted half the stuff I saw.
2: <laughs> well, <sighs> see, we call it Murphy's Law, right? It's affecting you now. Uh,
1: it's, yeah, it's—I love my cats. Anyway, but uh, they are like kids. After a while, you go, can I give them back just for a while? <laughs> anyway, hey, guys, welcome to Game of Crimes. Uh, as you know, just a, just some quick housekeeping, because that's what it says on the show script here just head on over to Apple and Spotify. Do that five-star review. It really helps out a lot. It helps out uh, with getting us visibility and exposing more people to this thing we call podcasting. Head on over to our website, com. Everything, our new uh, our book list, actually, our merch. Uh, we've got a guest coming up uh, here in a couple episodes that's got two books out, working on a third one. It's going to be a fun one. We just got through recording that episode. Um, get on our mailing list. Also, head on over to follow us on the social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes on podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, but Murph, where do you got to be? Where do you got to be? One more time, where do you got to be?
2: You got to come on over and join us on Patreon. Give us a shot. Listen to some of the extra content that we're putting out there. And like you've heard us say before, I think we've got more content on Patreon than we do here on the regular podcast, but there's some, it's an opportunity for us to uh, maybe get more into our opinions because on the podcast, we want our guests to tell their story. Although Morgan likes to tell his story, but, you know, we kind of blend that in and it all works out. When he's looking at, I'm getting a look right now on the on the video from him. Like, you you son of a gun.
1: Just don't don't open any packages, Murph. Don't open any packages.
2: But come over and check us out and see what you like, what you don't like, let us know. Weigh in. You know, we listen to our, our listeners and, and uh we we ask for your input. How can we make this better? So check us out on Patreon.
1: And that is patreon.com slash game of crimes. We've got some great content coming out. Um we've got uh episode uh three. Uh, the Cali Cartel just released. We've got episode four coming up. Uh, the real DA Narcos talking about the real DA Narcos Cali edition. Uh, we've got you can't make this shit up, 911, what's your emergency? So we got a lot of great stuff. Just check us out. Patreon.com slash game of crimes. You can also go to paypal.com and use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash game of crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support. The show, just like a jockstrap, how can you help support us? Uh, And remember. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) All righty. This is a show about crime and jockstraps. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but Murph, what do we never do?
2: And if you haven't figured it out, we never take ourselves serious. (laughs) We're going to have some fun.
1: That's right. And to have fun, guess what time it is, Murph? Guess what time it is? Guess one more time. Guess what time it is?
2: I bet it's time for... Small, Small town, town police.
1: police blotters. Bah, 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 bah. Here we go. Yeah. Um. Hey, Murph. Uh, yes. More stories out of Florida than I can shake a stick at, dude. <laughs> you are the leaders. There's Florida man and Florida woman. All this right. one comes to us from Angie Rush over in our Game of Crimes fans group. In fact, you got to go check that out. Go to Game of Crime, Game of Crimes fans. Uh, Sandy Salvato, a favorite mafia queen, will assess your worthiness, answer a couple easy questions, and you too may be let into the inner sanctum. We call the Game of Crimes fans group. And coming from her, this comes from Titusville, Florida.
2: Woohoo! That's not too Steve, far away. I gotta tell you,
1: I've seen a lot of things, uh, even back in my trooper days, but this one a woman with an open bottle of Jack Daniels whiskey in a bag was arrested for driving a golf cart. Mm-hmm. Not just on a golf cart, not just anywhere. On Florida's busiest interstate while drunk. The 58 year old woman was on the shoulder of Interstate 95. Um, And tell you what, had it not been for a heroic truck driver, um, a semi-truck driver spotted the woman driving in the golf cart in the center lane of Interstate 95 in Brevard County, which is the heart of Florida's Space Coast. The driver advised she observed her passing out while driving, so she used her truck to steer the golf cart onto the shoulder. Once on the shoulder, they grabbed the keys, they arrested her, But i gotta tell you here's what's interesting and i had to do just a quick bit of investigation she was charged uh only with uh basically uh you know being drunk in public uh they found an open bottle but um they did not charge her with driving under the influence and i had to go check the florida statutes to find out basically there's a special thing about golf carts and what she was doing i don't know why she wasn't charged with doa but only in Florida is a specific definition for golf cart uh, in the Florida statutes about what you can and can't do with it. And that's why I think she avoided the DUI charge.
2: Well, there's so many turtles down here. We like our golf carts. You know, we take them everywhere. Why get in the car when you can go on your golf cart? And anybody can drive drunk on a golf cart or on a golf course. It takes a special person to be able to do that on Interstate 95.
1: And they were so descriptive, she was drinking Jack Daniels' Tennessee Fire Whiskey. Yeah, That was the instrument of choice. All right.
2: Yeah, Jack and, I thought Jack Daniels and I were friends back in my drinking days, but it, it always turned out he never was my friend.
1: All right. Well, no, no, wasn't George <laughs> Young's friend either. That's what he said. Uh, but that wasn't the dope that killed him. It was the drinking. Yep. He burned his liver. Yep. Hey, by the way, Steve, I don't know wherever. Oh, It's actually in Waukesha, Wisconsin. 1024 okay. p.m. A woman in the 1800 block of Center Road reported that her neighbor was taking pictures of her while she was in her bedroom. Mm -hmm. Now, police determined that the woman was apparently, well, not apparently, was extremely intoxicated and said she had seen some kind of bright light coming from the neighbor's bedroom window. Officers made contact with the neighbor, who was completely blind and said he wouldn't take pictures of her even if he wasn't blind. (laughs) Oh, boy, well,
2: that would just kill your ego, wouldn't it? Oh, my even a blind man doesn't want your picture of you it's that bad yes it is that bad that's one
1: of the best ones we've had so far you're so ugly a blind man doesn't even (laughs) want to see you take your picture how ugly was she (laughs) sounds like a johnny carson joke yeah it does well steve i gotta tell you this is the other thing too is sometimes it's like do you really have to describe this so Brian Middle School reported the theft of an American flag on the morning of October 1st. It was four and a half foot by three foot. Steve, is any description required of the American flag?
2: Lord, I hope not. I think everybody in the world knows what it looks like.
1: Well, not according to this one. Uh, The four and a half by three foot flag was described as being red, white, and blue.
2: (laughs) Well, you know what? That's just filler for the report. (laughs)
1: Oh, no. uh, I gotta, uh. I'm going to throw one more into Because right above it <laughs> I just saw that too On the morning of September 27th The Bellevue man discovered That sometime during the previous night A person dented the driver's side door Of his Honda Civic With a plastic ornamental squirrel hmm.
2: Was that this in Florida? what's That's going on That's not Florida, there. was it?
1: No, nah, Bellevue I don't know where Bellevue Could be Washington I don't know There's a Bellevue up there But anyway Thus wow. endeth the reading for today Kitty, Domine, Don, Esser, So well Thank goodness, huh? <laughs> Even a blind man doesn't want to take your picture, honey. Oh,
2: man. That's funny.
1: I think the alcohol did influence some of that, though. So (laughs) speaking of influencing things, this one is going to be an interesting interview for a couple reasons. This is – it's interesting because we're going to get into talking about stuff. We had Jeff Sandy on a while back. Jeff was Mm an actual – uh, fully sworn IRS agent, you know the work that he did overseas uh, with uh, Tariq Aziz, tracing down Saddam Hussein's uh, millions and billions, and some of the work he did later with Tom Kirk uh, is good stuff. Now, but this is a this is a local officer who, because he took accounting in college, he said he had a head for numbers, but he also played football, and this guy is a big guy, played football but also worked for a large accounting firm before he actually got into law enforcement. I'm going, that's like, that's like Terry Tate office linebacker. You see somebody showing up in a suit and tie, you know, plastic pocket protector. We're here to audit you. Yeah. Um, so, but, uh, (laughs) but this is one you got set up for us, Steve. So tell us about Keith.
2: Yeah. So, uh, we're going to bring we got the interview here with Keith Cregan, who is a, um, Lieutenant with the Morristown, New Jersey police department. Um, and the way we found out about Keith was from his IRS supervisor. So Keith is a, a task force officer assigned to DEA and the IRS, uh, in that part of Jersey. And his his IRS supervisor is a listener to Game of Crimes. And he contacted me and he said, uh, his name, and this is Carlo Nastasi. So Carlo, thank you very much. Carlo said, love your show. You know, I've got everybody in the office listening to it. And one of our TF, one of our task force officers started to use the acronym there, TFO, um, is one of the hardest working, most intelligent police officers I've ever met with. A real, a true law enforcement professional. And he's got some great stories. You got to get him on the show. You almost said
1: he was a real trooper. You just almost said he was a real trooper.
2: No, I didn't. Yeah,
1: I saw the words for me.
2: You're hearing stuff. I would never say that. I mean, we're not talking about fixing cars or anything here. Anyway. Um, reached out to Keith and he is such a humble man and you could tell we've never met him in person, but when we can record our interviews, we can see each other on video. Uh, one of these days we might even show you guys if we get to get to that point, but, um, you could tell this is a, a big man, but, uh, and has done some miraculous things. You're going to hear some of his stories, but just as humble as they come. And this is for Sherry Foster. You're going to love it, Sherry. His daughter. He just took his daughter to UGA. She's going to be a dog, bulldog, coming up soon. So UGA, uh, loving, loving having Keith on here it was an honor to have him on the show. And and uh, let's get on into this story here. What do you think?
1: Yeah, because this is really a master class. I mean, he kind of gives us a master class. And and one of the cases we're talking about is a money laundering case. Um, how it comes to their attention, some of the things that they have available to them. Because folks, it's all about the money. If you can disrupt the money, you can take the money away, then you can take the toys away. And you get the dope, but, but if you get the dope or the, you know, some of the toys, you, you get some of the lower level people. You want to get the top people, you want to take out the head of the snake, follow the money. So Steve, if we're going to follow the money and we're going to hear another masterclass in how the uh, Internal Revenue Service and their task force officers track down people who are selling millions of dollars worth of coke and laundering that money, I can ask you one question. Are you ready to play the most tax-friendly, (laughs) tax-compliant podcast of all, the original, unadulterated, and biggest, baddest podcast on the internet, Game of Crimes?
2: Absolutely. So everybody, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Bring on Lieutenant Keith Cregan, Morristown, New Jersey Police Department.
1: My friends, this is a unique experience today. We have had people jump out of airplanes. We've had money launderers. We've had, you just name it, George Young to um, Luis Navia to people who are dealing in the types of stuff that we're going to be talking about here today. But this is the first time we've actually had a certified police accountant, fraud, cop, badass investigator on the show. So, hey, from Morristown, New Jersey, welcome,
0: Lieutenant Keith Cregan. <laughs> Thank you, thank you.
2: Good to have you here Keith.
0: I appreciate it it's uh it's an honor to be here uh, you know I've listened to the podcast and uh, we've warned you
1: never say that you say that now wait till the podcast <laughs> is over so but
0: you've you've had a lot of a lot of uh, you know great talent on on and it's it's an honor to be on with you guys so thanks for inviting me.
1: Today will be no different because we're just doing a little work on our pre-show and uh, got some interesting factoids we're going to cover. But hey, look, Keith, first of all, we just want everybody to know you are at the station recording this, obviously with the full approval of the chief and everybody on down, but it is uh, it is an active station. So if an alarm goes off, if uh, Keith is you know has to get a Band-Aid for a paper cut because he's working <laughs> in the financial crime section, if something may happen, so if you hear that, it, that's just nature
0: that's just the way it goes but
2: uh well, you might hear a uh, gunshot out there and that might be new jersey dispensing well, justice out there. That's I that's what don't you got right?
0: that's that that's about that in new jersey but uh, yeah that's more like <laughs> yeah. Newark. yeah yeah yeah
1: we <laughs> got a lot of friends <laughs> right that way drive-bys at the police station are not a normal everyday occurrence so let's hope that doesn't happen but hey look as we do with everybody when we get started lieutenant keith hey look tell us how did you get involved in this thing of ours because it is unique. Um, just reading a little bit about your bio, uh, you—how did you get into law enforcement? Considering is that your dad and you guys talked about becoming an accountant because that's what the FBI wanted. So, mm-hmm. how, how did you—how did you end up being a cop?
0: Well, I, I think from uh, an early on part of high school, I kind of you know steered towards the you know the financial piece of it. Again, you mentioned my dad; uh, he was an accountant and. Um, you know, when I was when I was in high school, I had a, a propensity for the numbers, and I um, wanted to get involved in law enforcement. My my ultimate goal, graduating high school and going into college, was to get into college uh, a, an accounting degree and use that degree to get into the FBI. So that was like kind of a track that I was I was looking at early on and did you receive
1: counseling for that <laughs> career desire? That's well, right. it
0: ultimately never happened. So you can, you can probably pick apart why. Um, but they, they, you know, I learned that they would took, uh, lawyers and accountants out of school and, um, you didn't have to do your three years of experience, you know, within law enforcement. So it was just a track that I started. And then when I, you know, got into accounting in college, I, um, you know the natural progression is to get into the you know the big five accounting firms at the time, the public accounting firms, and right out of high, right out of college, um, actually going into my senior year, I was offered a job to work for PricewaterhouseCoopers. Coopers. So my entire senior year of college, which turned about out to be my fifth year because I played football in college,' mm-hmm. um, Where at uh, University of Delaware. Is that the blue hens? It is the fighting blue hens under a legendary coach, <laughs> Tubby Raymond.
1: Now, the only got thing we him. have in common from a football standpoint is ready on the count of three. Let's say Ready. One, two, three. Go
0: Irish. <laughs> go Irish. <laughs> Excuse yeah, me. You yeah. got to get, get that in there, right?
1: Go, Mount get that ears. There.
2: That's what we're saying. Go,
1: Mount go ears. ears. Go ears.
0: How
2: about the ears?
1: Yeah. yeah. So, but uh, so why, why the University of Delaware?
0: Um, scholarship they offered they offered me money to play um it came down to an interesting story came down to lafayette college and university of delaware which were both recruiting me from you know from high school i wasn't a a big kid at the time per se but i was getting recruited to play defensive end and um it came down to actually a coin flip my high school baseball coach realized that i was having a difficult time (laughs) deciding what school so he pulled me out of class brought me down to the to the the school pool where he was a, uh, you know, phys ed coach or phys ed teacher. And he had me pull a coin out of my pocket and flip the coin. And he saw that, that, you know, it landed on Lafayette and he saw, you know, the look in my face and he goes, son, you just made your decision. And that's how I ended up at Delaware. But I was getting recruited by a, um,
1: (laughs) what was wrong with Lafayette?
0: (laughs) Nothing was wrong. But when I did official visit there, it was, it was, it was secluded. Um, you know, it was on a hill. And Delaware just was a bigger school and a bigger football program. And so I had to tell the football coach who recruited me, his name is Dave Cohen, he's actually um, now down at Wake Forest. He, when I had to call him and tell him, listen, I, I appreciate you recruiting me and... Uh, but I made my decision. I'm going to go to Delaware. You know, he was disappointed, but he wished me luck. And then a few weeks later, he called me up and he says, Hey, I just want to let you know you made a good decision. And so did I, I'm going to be your position coach at Delaware.
2: <laughs> oh. So good. the guy
0: that recruited me ended up being at at Delaware and was my position coach for for a couple of years until I switched over to the offensive line. Nice. Um, but yeah, so that's how I ended up at Delaware was a, a flip of a coin, I guess you could say. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so, but you know that that coach that had you do that knew what he was doing. I mean, he
0: was yeah. Well, you make I a mean, scissor. he never he never t- he never told me that he was he was looking at Delaware. He was obviously recruiting me for for Lafayette, and and uh, yeah. So he it, it turned out to that, be
1: recruiting you for Lafayette. <laughs> he was he was shaping your little mind. Hey, but yeah. you, you know, so, your poker face gave you away when he fl- when you flipped that. Yeah, game. right. <laughs> How does that work? How do you become a big stud defensive than offensive lineman and be? take accounting at the same time. Did you not catch some shit from the other guys?
0: <laughs> I did. I did. But so the, the way it worked at Delaware is you had a winter session and a summer session where you could concentrate on one class. And so it was an abbreviated high intensity class where, so I took all of my hard accounting classes during, during those times. So I didn't have to go to four different classes. I could just concentrate on one four or five right. different classes but yeah i can concentrate on that one hard accounting class so um i mean i wasn't i i tried to be a, a good student but it's all time management it's you know you're practicing and and you're sore and you're tired and you have your friends and your your roommates who are, are also playing football so you're all in it together um but yeah no so in in, in accounting one class you know built on the other so you definitely have mm-hmm. to stay you know up to speed and involved and stuff so but accounting really didn't click for me until post PricewaterhouseCoopers. Coopers. You know, i I was there auditing um, actuarial tables for insurance companies. Ooh,
1: which was, that sounds yeah. exciting.
0: Which is why I didn't stay in public accounting very long. Um, well, Did
2: I read that you were doing something for Major League Soccer?
0: Yeah. So so after so with PricewaterhouseCoopers, Coopers, I was trying to get on the the sports side of it, like the entertainment client. So they had the NFL and, and mm-hmm. some other big programs. And I ultimately got on to, it was, um, it was Simon Schuster was one of the clients that I worked on. So I got onto the little entertainment side of it. But by that point I was so, you know, I had moved on and I got into sports marketing, you know, another passion of mine was sports. So I, I worked for a, uh, production company out of New York city and it was like, um, you know, anything around, around sports, like travel, entertainment packages for big companies. And then I did um, my big one was the pass, put, and kick contest that we did for uh, GMR Works, which is the advertising arm of GM. And yeah. we did that for the NFL. I remember so those I things. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: So I was, I was the account executive over this pass, put, and kick contest with uh, Green Bay Packers, the Colts. Bengals and the Browns. And so it was around a the minute. Chevy Avalanche.
1: The Browns is a football team.
0: <laughs> yeah. They had a Cleveland. Oh, I
1: that. <laughs> hey, I got to ask you one question. What the hell happened was it the Oscars or the Emmys when Steve Harvey got it wrong? He announced the wrong thing. Who did the – who was responsible for counting that? Was it that PricewaterhouseCoopers?
0: I think that might have been Ernst & Young. No, I don't, oh, yeah. don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. That's like something right. wrong in law enforcement. We blame it on the Bureau, right? Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. Well, exactly. It wasn't us. <laughs> so, us. But, but so from the time you got out of college and this – how many years are you out of college now between PwC and working for these, doing these things? So, so, are you, what, three yeah, four so years grew- out of college now?
0: I graduated just to set the time. Though I graduated in 1999, went working for PwC, and I ultimately got hired by Morristown in 2004. So, obviously, the big event that happened in that time frame was 9/11, and I was in the city for 9/11. I was working at what it was called Tuckman Sports Enterprises at the time, and you know we were cold calling different companies offering services, and you know the business just tanked because of 9-11 nobody was traveling everything was going on so sh- shortly after 9-11 I, I had a resume into major league soccer so then i ultimately took you know the sports marketing and promotions and then parlayed it back into my accounting experience with price coopers on my background and then i was doing sports finance with major league soccer so then i did that for several years and so kind of after 9-11 was the big push where I was at the same time interviewing for the FBI. I took the test, I got to phase two, and they wanted to sit down with my wife at the time. Well, my wife, my current wife. <laughs> my who... wife at the time. Does she know that? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we can edit that piece. No, but so, yeah, she, uh, <laughs> she. they wanted to talk to her about moving because that was the big thing with the FBI. They were going to move you around. The, the office that you got recruited in wasn't going to be the office that you worked in. So I was being recruited out of Newark and they wanted to, you know, ask her how she felt about moving and. You know, I was born and raised in Morristown. I haven't, you know, gone very far and w- there was no way she was moving, you know, too many family in the area. Mm-hmm. So at that point, when I decided the FBI was a no-go, that's when I took the civil service test and ultimately got hired by Morristown.
1: So let's let's rewind a little bit because you, you've glossed over nine eleven a couple of times. That's a, that was a big issue, you know, in your area, obviously New York, New Jersey, you got the Port Authority of New York, New Jersey, I think lost 34 officers. Um, 343 firefighters, you know, I mean, that that was a huge day. How much of an impact did 9-11 have on you to say, yeah, this is definitely what I want to do. I want to go into law enforcement.
0: So we, I was up on 34th and between 7th, 6th and 7th, that's where the office was, right kind of near Madison Square Garden. It was east of the Empire State Building. So when 9-11 happened, you know, people came out of the back room, you know, holy crap, plane just went in. And we made our way up to the roof of the building, and we were standing on the roof looking downtown and can see everything happening. And the first thing that I thought was – I looked to my left, and there was the Empire State Building. I'm like, this could be the next target. I'm getting out of here.
1: Could you so see, the, people, could you see the, the Twin Towers from where you were at?
0: Yes. Yeah, you could see everything happening. And so – um I actually made my way back down to my office because I was going to get ready to go. And, you know, it just so happened my father was able to get myself on the phone and my brother worked in the city and my sister worked in the city. So my sister worked downtown and at the time nobody had talked to her. So, my father, you know, helped my brother and I coordinate a spot. You know, no cell phone service, so we ended up going and wait. I waited on a corner for him in the city, prearranged, and then we beelined it over to the ferry terminals because the ferries was one of the only ways you could get out. Um, and we waited in this line, and it, you know, it took all day to to catch a ferry out of the city. And at the same time, you're watching all of the smoke and everything. But while I was doing this whole thing, I couldn't help but want to go down you know they kept saying everything was blocked I think south of the 14th street or whatever and i couldn't help but saying i want to go down but you know i also have my, my wife at home and what am i going to really do down there and it just was like this burning feeling like i i wanted to do something and i later worked with you know officers that actually packed up from morristown and went down into the rubble and helped and but the defining moment for me was shortly after 9-11, there was a big blackout in the city. And when the blackout happened, everybody just poured out onto the streets all at once. And it was, it was chaos because people didn't know at the time what was happening. And when we beelined it back to the ferry, instead of this long winding line waiting for the ferry, it was just chaos at the ferry. And ferries would come in and they would load with the, front pe- the people in the front. And then it would go to Hoboken and then another, but by the time people moved up, there was no more people going to Hoboken. So it kind of left empty and there was no, and I just had this desire to stand up and try and coordinate this thing. Like everybody going to Jersey City, go to the left, everybody going to Jersey, Hoboken go to the right. And there just, just wasn't happening. So when, when I was going through that, that was ultimately the decision when I said, I have to do something. And this is why I became a cop. And, and and when looking back on it, it was that chaos of of the blackout where I was like, you know, I want to do something that that I could.
2: But you know, you know I, help. even before you got into law enforcement, you're starting to exhibit signs of leadership. That's that's somebody coming into chaos and trying to make some sense out of it to get control of the situation. And even though you're unsuccessful and you have no authority to do that, it's just you mm-hmm. took the initiative, which is you know. It's like, I, you know, I tell anybody to listen to me. You have a choice. You can be a leader or you can be a follower. You know, choose to be a leader. And that's exactly what you were doing there, which I think is extremely admirable.
1: And many yes. of the things Murph leads on in West Virginia are not suitable for publication on this con, on this podcast. Yeah,
2: well, next time you go to West Virginia, you may not come back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or at least with all my teeth. All right. Uh, back Back to Keith.
0: But but the pr- the process to get hired then as a cop is, you know, you got to wait for the civil service test. You got to take the test. You got to wait for the results to come back. Then you sit on a list. So I was sitting on this civil service li- list for, I think it lasts for three years, and it was the tail end is of the list. for
1: every department? So no matter which department you want to get on, you got to take a civil service test? Well,
0: no. In New Jersey, you have civil service towns, which is what Morristown is, and then you have chief's town. So... Our, our neighboring agency is Morris Township, and they are a chief's town, so that's all designated by, you know, the chief doing their own, you know, recruiting and hiring process. Where we go through a list um, of, you know, the, the testing candidates and how they they rank in their testing. So,
1: so your testing is only good for Morristown, then?
0: Well, no. So, you have civil services throughout the whole state, but you could designate where you want your results to go to. Okay. So. Yeah, i was kind of silly because all i wanted to do was work for morristown so i just designated my list to go to morristown but guys that um came on after me were hired off of the county list so once you exhaust the morristown list then it goes to the entire Morris county list and then once you exhaust that list it'll go to a state list so i was towards the tail end of the morristown list um i guess i didn't test too well at that point but uh, but you get preference if you're a resident in, in, in town and I, and I, and I was but a this resident. This is a recurring so.
1: thing. I wasn't that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I had a, We weren't going to tell anybody like, that, we, man. Yeah, <laughs> we were going Hey, but I've, real quickly though, too, tell us real quick though, uh, set some context to about Morristown. Tell us about basically what's the population of the town, how big's your police department?
0: So, so our police department is authorized for, I want to say 62, but we've hovered in the fifties for as long as I can remember. And we go up and down depending on retirements and, you know, the Academy, the guys that go into the Academy, guys and girls that go into the Academy, they are, you know, it's six months in the Academy and then you're probationary and then you have to, you know, go through training and all this stuff. So to, so to get somebody hired and onto the road is, is well more than a year. So we kind of fluctuate in terms of numbers, but um, so we're about two and a half square miles. We have about 20,000 residents, but because it's a, it's, you know, the, the County center uh, it's got, you know, the superior courthouse, it's got a trauma center, it's got a train station. We, we do well over a hundred thousand you know during, during the the business days here in Marstown. So we we are a busy busy department. We are probably the busiest department in the county. Um, and you know it's it's you know has everything that that you can you know try and that you want to get involved in in policing. You know, we have a an emergency response team. We've got a traffic team. We've got uh, you know different types of specialized officers. And, you know, we have OEM, our emergency management officers. So although we're a small agency, we do have opportunities, but they're far and few between. So we have, I think we have six detectives, five or six detectives. Um, so when I got hired, I was on the road for for three years and then got put down in the bureau um, in, in relatively short order.
1: Yeah. Three years is pretty quick. Uh, how yeah. did you make that transition so quick from the road to investigations?
0: Um, it was always told to me cause I worked midnight. So they said, write a good report. So the bosses will, you know, learn about you through your, your police reports. And obviously being an investigator, that's obviously what everybody reads is, is key, your police yeah. reports. Yeah. So it was, it was instilled in me early on through some of my bosses to write a good report. Um, and then, you know, we had a lot of turnover, you know, at the time. So, um, it was just kind of a natural progression it It's a unique schedule, and some some of the older officers didn't want to do it and it just was offered to me, and obviously it was a no brainer so
1: I used to tell people when I was a detective the pen is truly mightier than the sword I said <laughs> I sent more people to prison with a pen and an affidavit writing reports you know than anything else, and that's the whole thing is you know because you're really a storyteller at that point. can you tell me a story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end? It has a good conclusion, you followed logic, it follows the steps you know and you, you not every case no case is perfect every case has holes you know the job of a detective is just to make the holes so small that the bad guy and girl can't get through them and if you and if you don't have the facts uh, guess what you don't invent new facts you go out and either find new facts or you change the theory of the case unless you're in <laughs> yeah. New Jersey and you're dealing with Tony Soprano right yeah <laughs> it's different yeah
2: the admirable but, but thing like, about Morgan too is is both people he arrested did go to prison <laughs>
1: yes <laughs> yes they did and I know and where Jimmy Hoff is buried say
0: so, yeah. <laughs> right <next to> <laughs> but but I I, I I really enjoyed my time on the road you know it, this the this shift work is definitely brutal on the family I I had two little kids at the at the time and working midnights and you know you always felt like you had jet lag um but you really got a chance to work on a squad and the camaraderie of the squad and, and stuff like that. I I've been, you know, that's one of the things I miss about, about the road and obviously the various calls. And when you're, when you're younger, it's obviously, you know, young and gun and, and you're ready to go on any call, any hot call that comes in. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely missed that and I didn't have it for, for very long, but then, you know, after, those three years, I, I was I was really, really interested in going into into the into the investigative unit. And then I've kind of, you know, from there, like I said, we're a small agency. So you work on any different types of cases that come in, whether it be, you know, a, a murder case or a robbery or, or you know, aggravated assaults, what, whatever it is, rapes, you know, you're you're investigating. And, and if you're on call, you're you're catching those cases. And so you do learn at the deep end of the pool. And, um, you know, I, I was fortunate to, to work with, I I can say this throughout my whole career, smart people, um, that, that taught me, you know, the right way to do things and, and to be thorough and and complete. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a great experience down in in the Bureau and you're talking about the the pen. I did a lot of search warrant cases. I I actually gravitated towards the, the drug cases, um, in our town. So, you know, that was that was what I kind of steered towards was, you know, building those cases, writing affidavits, presenting the judges, and then, um, you know, building, building cases like that. And, you know, f- from there, I was, you know, because I was, all of our cases, if they're, if they elevate in de- degrees of crime, they then will move up to the prosecutor's office, where you're working hand in hand with the APs and then the detectives up in the prosecutor's office.
1: Hey, let's stop there for a second because that is a unique arrangement between a lot of places. A lot of places, the cops do all the investigation. There are no investigators in the um, uh, DA's office, you know, or the attorney's office. And so, how does that work? How do you guys not end up having a turf fight or, you know, get into a turf war? You know, between well, this is my case. No, it's my case. So, how does how do you guys draw the lines between? You know what they work on and what you work on
0: it, I guess it's kind of a trust factor you, you know you, you build relationships from case to case to case and and you know who who' some of the people you you can trust and I had an informant uh, years ago who who was very good uh, you know, and he would steer me to different cases and one of the cases he steered me to was previously investigated by our prosecutor 's office and and it actually helped rekindle. Another relationship from you know a, a detective in the prosecutor's office with new information that I was able to bring to him through through my informant, and it just kind of morphed and it and it worked. And you you really have to take a step back and say, you know, it's it's not about me. It's not about the case. It's about the greater case, and you know why we get involved in this is is to take down criminals. So you do have to kind of take a step back and and say you know, if I'm gonna make this work, I, I I need other people to help me in, in my cases. I need the detectives that are gonna work with the prosecutor's office up, you know, in 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 the Morris County prosecutor's office. So I always took it a step as like I'm not gonna create a turf war, but I'm gonna, you know, reach out for help. And that's just how I, I've always operated.
1: Now, does the DA's office there have the authority to come in and take over a case based on certain thing? I mean, can they take a case away from you as a city department?
0: I mean, they can, they, they always try and work with you. I mean, I think that that's the, the nice relationship we have in Morris County is, is you know, they could have, you know, they could be, they could strong arm you, but then good luck getting the next case out of you. And I, I think they, they do recognize that. Like if, if you're going to create that, this is my case and only my case, then, you know, there's going to be another case down the road and, and yeah, good luck with me helping you do that case. If you're going to do that to me.
2: Well, a lot of those investigators in the DA's office are former police officers, also, aren't they?
0: Oh yeah. Well, you can do your whole career in in the Morris County Prosecutor's Office. There are retired guys that go up there as agents and kind of help, you know, do, do different pieces. But you know, the pe- the people that I worked with, and, and and I'm dating myself here a little bit. It was, you know, from 2007 to when I went full time with the with the IRS. So it was that short you know, three and a half year window that I was working, you know, you know, with, with these, these guys hand in hand. And now they're all elevated and they're all bosses up in, in the prosecutor's office now, and many of them retired. But um, yeah, I I think we, we did, we had a good working relationship. It started with, you know, I was working with senior detectives that had good relationships with them up there. And, and, it, it just worked and it was just a natural progression. So it really was never something that, you know, I only came across, you know, the turf wars later on in my career where, you know, we're kind of battling that now. Um, but it's, you know, it is what it is. And, and you, you'll work through it, like I said, for, for the greater part of, part of the, of the cases and the, and the bring down the criminals. So that's at least in my experience.
1: So, Murph, guess who started out life as an investigator in the Bergen County District Attorney's Office?
2: Bergen County. I uh, don't know.
1: Dominic Polafrom, <laughs> one of our guests, the guy who brought down the Richard Kuklinski. He started off in the uh, Bergen County DA's office.
2: They probably had to get rid of him because of all the F bombs he drops.
1: Man, you got to go, go face <laughs> well, it. You're is it talk uh, like
0: that. The, the other case with American Gangster, um, he started out in Bergen County, I think, too.
1: Yeah, well, between Dominic Polifron and Tommy Sendrick, uh, these two hold the records for most F-bombs ever dropped in a single episode. I didn't hey, realize but, everything could be described that way. Heath,
2: do you know Do you know a guy up there named uh, John McCabe?
1: By I chance? know the name.
2: Retired I DEA. I think he's in Bergen County. He might be chief of the investigators up there now. Um, super guy. I mean, just a hell of an investigator uh, from Jersey. We pray for him every day, but, you know, he's got in his blood. He's born and raised there. He can't help it.
0: You know what I'm talking and, about. You know, and, and and that's that's one of the nice things about about law enforcement is is if you have the connections and you reach out, you know somebody's going to know somebody at some place. And if you if you have a good reputation and and like you brought up Morgan, if you're going to strong arm people, nobody's going to want to work with you, and your your reputation is going to get out there. And and I, I just I was fortunate; I didn't really have that too much in, in my in in my career, especially with within Morris County.
1: Hey, so put it in context too. Tell us where uh, tell us where your county is, where your city is in relation to the state.
0: So we're northern central. We're about um, thirty miles west of New York City, maybe a little little closer. You know, on on a good day, you can get into the city within you know fifty minutes. Okay. And we have a we have a train line that goes right from Morristown in, into Penn Station. You know, midtown. Is that the PATH train? No, the, the PATH is is closer to like Hoboken and Jersey City. This would okay. be New Jersey New Jersey Transit.
1: Yeah, I tell you, when I've been through New York several times, you know, and Penn is just trying to figure out which line you're supposed to be on, all the trains that are in there, man. <laughs> I, I think not, I got lost and wandered around in there for 24 hours.
0: I'm not going to ever say I went west by accident. <laughs>
1: Hey well um so let's talk about some of the stuff we're going to start getting into the case that we're going to talk about here in a little bit but when did your accounting background by the way I want to go back to a phrase you said you you said you had a propensity for numbers did you ever run numbers in college were you doing any uh, gambling <laughs> no,
0: no no actually I was you know my, AC was close to Delaware and at times we we did trip up to AC but you know going going That's back Atlantic to Atlantic City fa- yeah Atlantic City my my father you know he he was straight laced by the books and he says, "Listen if you're gonna gamble, just do it as entertainment right you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna have your hundred bucks and and just think of it as entertainment and if you win you win but i know I never got into into the uh running the numbers, but you know blackjack or and I don't count cards, but blackjack was was uh <laughs> Uh, I d- Why did I you did feel like the need to tell us that? And- you- because I, th- I, you know, the way you guys read, <laughs> I assumed that that's where that was going.
1: We were not going to say anything of the sort. Uh, <laughs> but but
0: uh, no, so so that was the only thing. Just a couple trips to Lake. Mark, you notice he said he didn't, said he didn't
1: count numbers. He never said anything about his buddies he took with him <laughs> who were counting right. numbers. <laughs> oh, oh, no, 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 no no no, my my, yeah. buddy-
0: well, my buddies were smart in their own right, but they were not uh, counting uh, counting majors. So yeah, now that
1: was a backhanded compliment. There, they were smart, but not that smart.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, well, you know, the dumb football meathead, uh, you know, Lyman, you know, always kind of stuck around with us, but um, no, so I didn't, I didn't, you know, in, in college it was, yeah, no, it wasn't, it wasn't anything like that.
1: Well, the reason I brought that up is I, I threw out Tony Soprano just kind of jokingly, but you know, there's been a, there was a, there still is a lot of organized crime in the area. We had Michael on. He was actually a made couple regime, you know, Colombo uh, crime family. How much uh, organized crime were you exposed to growing up in your area that you were aware of?
0: Um, I was aware of, of some organized crime you know a little further east from where Morristown is, but I was never really exposed to it um, you know from from a, a, an investigator standpoint uh, when When I took on cases within Morristown. Um, you know, a lot of them, it, it came from, you know, street information or, or whatever got passed down through through some source or whatever. So, like, again, most of my cases that I concentrated on were, were all drug investigations and not so much, uh, you know, there was – I can't remember any mob stuff that came through on my end.
1: Yeah, did, but, but did you have any mob stuff happening in the town?
0: Uh, in Morristown, no, but in Morris County, yes. Like okay. th- that was something that the prosecutor's office, you know, had – had different cases that that did tie into that. And that was an inter- interesting interview with him. I, I couldn't I couldn't believe that he could keep numbers like that in his head. I, I have a pr- propensity for numbers, but I can't I can't do that.
1: You're mm-hmm. you're running, I mean, you are bankrolling people, you know, you're loan sharking and he's keeping all of this stuff in his head and I'm going well, you-.
0: I, I, when I was at Major League Soccer, I worked with with one of the one of the executives there was was that type of person and and he would ask you questions about you know what game made what revenue, and he he could regurgitate something that was said to him months ago. And I uh, okay, that I guess that's right. I'll have to go look it up. And he goes, no, 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 that's right. I, I was, I don't have.
1: That. <laughs> Sounds like my wife. If she remembers shit from ten years ago and brings it up. But no, I, mm-hmm. I'm not. Like, I think all wives do that.
0: I'm not like that. I I I, ha- I mean, more of like I could kind of see the flow of 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 money if that makes sense like you know i when i was at pricewaterhouse coopers we did training in in in, it was in canada it was in mississauga and they had all of these different examples that you were supposed to go and look at invoices and i would pick out all of these different errors that would happen that was happening in their case examples and they're like yeah that one's not in our in our um you know, in our notes here. So (laughs) we'll add that to the notes if I saw an (laughs) error or whatever. So I I, I just, yeah, I just was able to kind of Digest things, I guess, pretty quickly in, in terms of reviewing documents and stuff Some like that. Some cops
2: are good at remembering license numbers. Uh, guys that do wiretaps are great with telephone numbers. You know, we're all good at remembering names, especially the criminals that you put in jail. That kind of thing. Oh,
0: well, I, that, then I, then I have to drop, and he's gonna he's gonna kill me. He's already said he's gonna walk through and kick my door down. But uh, I I have he's now a captain here, Michael Buckley, and, and he was my first boss in the DB, and he was instrumental in getting me to where i was at within the irs and i'll explain that later but he we called him rain man because he could remember Mm -hmm. any phone number that he (laughs) he he needed to get to and you would say who's johnny's number and he regurgitated and then you would say it it was it was yeah he he's definitely rain man in many ways, but he's, uh,
1: <laughs> why don't you take him to Atlantic
0: city? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that would be another beast you'd have to deal with though. We, we'll stay clear of that one.
1: So now we also have a rule. You have to define acronyms. I know what it means, but you said DB a couple yeah. times. De-
0: so what's DB? Detective Bureau. Sorry. everything's acronyms, okay. right? Detective Bureau. It is. No, yeah. DBAC. Hey, let me, let me yeah. uh, straighten uh, out one thing here. Cause
2: <laughs> if I don't, I'll hear from it. I looked up John McCabe's at union County, which I think that butts, that butts you guys, right? That's right next to you.
0: Um, it's, it's actually where, um, the IRS, uh, uh, building is Union County. Um, but is it Union? It's, it doesn't butt us, but it, it's further east of us.
1: So, John, sorry. I got that wrong, buddy. Yeah. Close enough oh, for government. Work. I'll hear from it.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Close enough for government work. Speaking of government work. Let's talk about your government work, because you said your captain was instrumental getting you involved. So kind of take us through the trajectory. You're in the detective bureau, yep. the DB, as we on yep. the inside call it. Um, but you're in the DB. And now when do you start working? When do you start getting affiliated with outside agencies like IRS or DEA or other folks? When do you start working those things? And what leads you into becoming uh, a task force
0: officer? So so because of the, the drug cases I was doing and in, in the search warrants that were coming out of them... Um, there's a, uh, there was, a, a I guess he was a captain at the time, Jeff Paul, who's like a, a legend in Morris County in terms of all the different types of investigations, and he worked very closely with my boss, Bu- Michael Buckley, and they were able to get me into a DEA financial school that was being run in, um, you know, in, in Southern Jersey. So on a whim, I'm going to this three-day school, and it was first where I learned Uh, about this, this IRS task force that was being formed. And uh, they were looking for, you know, local cops, county cops to to be part of this task force. Um, And at the time, it was called, you know, the SAR task force. And so I brought it (laughs) Uh, up. Time out. Acronym. Acronym. Suspicious Activity Reports, which is what the task force was called. So So
1: and just as you're doing that, also add context to right. what SAR means, how it's used, you know, its purpose. So the,
0: the SARS are part of the BSA filing, um, BSA? and we Boy, would re- BSA BSA Bank Boy Secrecy House Act filings. We're, We're gonna, gonna bust your dude. <laughs> this, I, I, I used to do this to all the other federal guys that always yeah. talked acronyms. It was awful, and here I am doing it. But yeah, so the banks, the Bank Secrecy Act, you know, has you know various filings, and one being a suspicious activity activity report. And the banks are required to report on any types of activity that they deem suspicious that moves through a financial institution. So, you know, they're filing numerous reports uh, on a daily basis, and it's law enforcement's job to go in and, and pick them out. And so that's where we would, you know, that was part of the task force was, you know, reviewing reviewing these various types of filings. So
1: what triggers a filing? So if you're, if you're a person coming in, because you always know with most people, it's like, hey, you come into the country, they say, hey, if you got more than $10,000, you got to declare it on your customer. It's okay. You can you can bring in more than 10000 you just got to declare it. What are some of the things that trigger some of these reports?
0: So like, so the, the CMIR is what you just spoke about, the currency monitoring, I, I don't even know the name of that but I know it's CMIR. So if you're gonna fly into the country and you have fifteen thousand dollars on you, you're supposed to declare it. And it's just a, a time-stamped form that goes into IRS Form Heaven that says you had fifteen thousand dollars at any given time. So There's, you know, within the Bank Secrecy Act, the BSA filings, there's currency transaction reports, which is very similar, but now that's movement of money through a financial institution. So if you move, if you have more than $10,000 and you're going to make a deposit, the bank fills out a form and that form goes up in the IRS heaven. So one of the things that we were doing was looking at structuring. So structuring is taking a pot of money and breaking it down to avoid that form. So if you have, let's say, fifty thousand dollars in cash and you say, I'm gonna take nine thousand dollars and go to this branch, deposit nine, go to another branch, deposit nine, go to another branch, deposit nine, and in the grand scheme of things, you just move fifty thousand dollars, but you just deposit it away to avoid the form, then that would be called structuring. So structuring would happen, and you know, we did, you know, structuring cases, but what what happens is on the back end, if if the banks sees that and it's filed, they'll do what they call a back office CTR. And it's ultimately getting filed, but it's just saying there was multiple transactions that happened on a given day that totaled $50,000.
1: So every suspicious activity report at some point also has a, not, won't necessarily have a currency transaction report because it doesn't trigger the, the filing, right? So right?
0: A, sus- a suspicious activity report might report on the $50,000 movement of money, um, but it might also report on, you know, let's say money moving to iran or money you know however whatever happens money coming out of china money um being wired in a certain way you know there's a number of things that could trigger a suspicious a suspicious activity report you know a a teller pullback so i bring in fifteen thousand dollars and the teller tells me uh you have to you know if if you deposit 15, I'm going to, there form has to be filled out. Well, you pull back, you know, six and then you deposit nine, that would be a pullback. That might trigger some type of filing if it happens on so many occasions. So there's a number of things that might trigger a filing. Um, and I can't speak to, to that piece of it because I've never worked, you know, at at a bank. But, you know, there there is, you know.
1: Just the simple movement of money between banks. Not all of those trigger a SAR, suspicious no. activity report, because banks move tons of money, That's you know, on a daily basis, right?
0: Oh Just yeah. So everybody
1: Without
2: knows the CMIR is mean, Currency or Monetary Instrument Report. Huh. See, we're educational,
0: right? So, so yeah. So these yeah, are right. all these are all <laughs> yeah, But you had I'm to that. <laughs> I knew it at one point, but you know, too many acronyms and and too many too many forms, but so so going back to now the training as part of this training, you know you learn about these these things in, in law enforcement and you know what what to look for and, and and all these different you know financial trainings but then they also pitched this task force IRS came in and they said we're we're looking to get a group together that has financial experience and I brought it back to my bosses here and you know at the time Sergeant Buckley was like this this could be a home run and and you know you're trying to build you know big financial cases and 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 the end result would be you know forfeitures so if you're seizing drug money off of somebody and that drug money then goes through the process and gets forfeited because I'm involved in that as a Marstown officer, Marstown then gets a share of that and that goes back into police operations and um it's you know it's
1: and so when you said it was a home run, what you're saying is that if you work enough cases, make enough seizures, your position actually gets paid for through the seizures. Right.
0: So they were actually use use the seizures to replace me as an officer that allowed me to stay, you know, on the task force and then, you know, not be down an officer at Mars But you know, it, it because we're such we our our numbers move, very year to year. You know, the guys were still guys and girls were still pulling up to slack because I was gone. There was always kind of, you know, more cases that people had to divvy up and, and stuff like that. So um, I, you know, again, if it wasn't for, 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 for Mike Buckley we, he got named by the IRS as a PPA, and I'll purchase some pain in the ass because he kept calling and saying, listen, my guy."
1: Is that in the dictionary of acronyms, PPA? Well, they,
0: that's what they called him, so PPA. So, so he would call on a regular basis and say, "My, you know, my guy is available, my guy is available, and he actually convinced the IRS to create a part-time position for me. So, you know, I worked with – so, you know, as I got to the – and it was – there was a little – A little back and forth at the time within morristown because the other mayor was trying to do another federal program 287g uh which was trying to deputize us as immigration officers um and and then when a new mayor came in he reviewed the program he says okay i i I approve of this so then it took a little time to get through but then i got onto the task force i was a part-time officer and i had worked with you had brought up uh, Steve, Union County, there was, you know, investigators from Union County, Monmouth County, some local count, uh, office, uh, local departments in, in South Jersey, and then Hillside. Um, so there was, you know, f- five or six of us that were then doing these types of, of, of cases. And you know we would do outreach programs with the banks and and you know to show that there is a worth for them you know doing these these different types of filings and that we are reviewing them and and stuff like that so um yeah so so with Muck, with michael buckley being the ppa then i was able to kind of get into the task force and i was part time for about 9 months another officer retired and then they just pushed me full time and then that was in like 2011 and then i stayed there until about 2019 when my agency brought me back. But what was a home run for me is I left the agency as a detective and with the civil service rules when I was eligible to sit for the sergeant's exam, I took I took the exam, I came out on a list, and they promoted me into sergeant. And they kept me at, at the uh, on the task force. And then several years later, I was able to sit for the lieutenant's test. I sat for it, came out. And they promoted me into lieutenant. So then i I've elevated the ranks. So I think by 2013, I was a lieutenant, but still doing cases on 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 the task force.
2: So that so there are not that many lieutenants in your agency. So you right? were
0: no. I think there's five five or six of us.
2: So to give up a lieutenant position to go to a federal task force that's a that's a very high ranking position. Very unusual. Yeah,
0: that's a commitment that yeah that the, that the town made and and I was fortunate and and since since I've been here I think the town's seen a little more than 2 million dollars Uh, in forfeiture funds, um, you know. So if I was a
1: defense attorney, I would say, your honor, my client is obviously innocent because the only reason this money was seized was so that Lieutenant Keith Cregan could stay on the task force and enjoy just living the good life. And my client (laughs) did nothing wrong.
0: I wouldn't say it was a good life. uh, But, you know, know what what the task force office, uh, you know, what that did was, is, you know, I would get calls from our guys and say, um, you know, I have this type of case. Do you know anybody in this agency, or do you know anybody in that agency? And it was, so it was kind of like a a good way to steer different leads or different cases or or what have you. And and you know, right now we have we have an officer that's you know working with the DEA exclusively, and and uh, so you know, it definitely kind of you know it got us exposure to you know larger agencies and 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 more. You know, if we have issues in town, we have those those connections that we could, you know, go to and 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 use. So
2: I was just gonna say, when talk when real you quick. put people okay. in jail for these different crimes, you hurt them. But when you take their stuff, like their financial assets, you can make them cry.
0: <laughs> take their <laughs> well, right, best. you yeah, know, because that's what they're into the business for. Right? Exactly. Exactly.
1: Hey, talk for a second about the politics, though, of asset forfeiture and divvying up stuff, because. We've all had those experiences, right, where somebody comes along after you make a good seizure and they go, hey, where our guy was just a mile down the road and he was almost there. So oh, we should yeah. get 10 percent of whatever comes in.
0: So so those decisions are always outside of my control, which is great. You know, I don't have to I don't really have to deal with that. You always say that, listen, just, you know, remember us. But again, I don't want to say that this is this is about the money for, for us, you know.
1: No, it's not. But, but let's be honest. When, when you get those things and you can legitimately seize the assets of narco traffickers or of criminals and stuff and you go to dividing them up, dividing it up is not a mathematical problem Absolutely. anymore. It's a political so, so problem. So a lot
0: of that – so with the task force, there were certain percentages that were already worked out and that's typically what happens if you're case-specific okay. or if you are just you know, you know, know, part of the information. It kind of depends on, on how many hours you guys are – put you, you put into the case. So um, – uh, I've never seen any any type of infighting. I'm sure there people feel slighted at some points, but
2: I, I tell you what, in, in Atlanta I ran the OCDF Strike Force, the organized crime drug enforcement task force strike force for the Atlanta division and had multiple agencies in there. And the only reason the state and locals wanted to get in was to get in the ass, you know, get into asset sharing. It also benefited their city or their county, whatever their jurisdiction was. So I don't want it to sound like they were just in it for the money. But some of the ugliest fights in the world or when it came to asset sharing, well, you know, we've had a guy in the task force. And, yeah, your guy's been here. And he ain't done shit, you know, but uh, or he has, you know, you had to. And then you call your I was a, a I was an ASAC back assistant special agent in charge. But you call your, your group supervisors and say, guys, give me give me the percentage breakdown how you want this to go. Justify it. Let's get this over with. Get off my desk.
0: Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, the case agents at the, at the federal, they'll fight for for people that deserve it. At yeah. least is what I've seen. You know, they'll, they'll definitely say, you know, if, 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 you know, if he did a, a majority of the work or was a lead agent or the testifying agent, he obviously deserves, right. you know, more. And I, that's, I've, I've seen that, you know, I've seen that piece of it, but again, it's, it's good.
1: No, I was going to say, let's run that thread out a little bit. Cause you were at a DEA school and the IRS comes in, right. Which is a small nonprofit uh, organization. Um, <laughs> a friend of mine used to work for the inspector general for uh, treasury TIGDA. And, uh, but- so you started getting, so, so you now start doing these cases. What point in your career, you said you did this from, uh, uh, up through, uh, 2000, um, uh, from just till recently, right? 2000. I was looking at my notes here, uh, up till what, 2019 yeah, so, so you said? I
0: got pulled back. So after the tr- the trial that we'll talk about, I'm sure, um, I got pulled back and, Accreditation was is a big thing in in law enforcement now, and and so uh, the town wanted it wanted the police department to become accredited. So, being the only boss that didn't have a you know a workload within Mars they brought me back to do accreditation.
1: So, so and that's Calia, right? The Commission for the Accreditation ours, of Law Enforcement yeah, well Agencies. Yeah, that,
0: that's a that's a more steep. That's, yeah, that's the that's national? national. Ours is the New Jersey Chiefs Association. So, you know, it's 60 standards that are considered, you know, best practice within the state of New Jersey based on attorney general guidelines and case law and stuff like that. So, yeah, so we implemented all of these different standards, and and then we have to prove that we're we're following them. Oh my gosh, did
2: you did you Compliant did you them. piss off the well, Let's go back to the fun part.
0: <laughs> uh, again, I was the only one without without a current workload, and I wasn't uh, here to defend myself. That's why you so never want to miss a meeting. <laughs> it definitely trickled downhill, and you got volunteered. Yeah. Yes. Hey, listen, again, I know I know what I signed up for, so that's fine. You you come in and. You do your job, and and then so I I was I did accreditation, but at the same time I was working a case with DEA, and and mm-hmm. they wanted me to come back case specific to help to continue to help develop it. And so while I was doing accreditation, and with the blessing of the chief, I would go down and 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 continue to help you know the DEA, you know farm out leads, um, and then you know looking at different you know financial pieces, and then it morphed into well, I I need certain certain resources from the IRS. And the boss who brought me into the IRS, who was a special agent, um, Michael Martinez, he was a, a, a supervisor special agent. He was now the SAC of New Jersey. And so it was a phone call to, to Michael Martinez. And I said, this is where I'm at. And um, my agency would be happy as long as I continue to do my full workload, if I can come in and, and be part-time. So that's just kind of how it then morphed back full circle to now I'm both case-specific at DEA and, you know, part-time with IRS criminal Man. investigation.
1: You got a lot of, you got a lot of, and money. then so, yeah, I
0: just, <laughs> okay. I just totally jumped into the, <laughs> into the near.
1: Well, no, but let's, let's, No, let's start setting the context for that, too, because what we're going to do is talk about a case you had between 2011 and 2014, basically about a a three-and-a-half-year period, involving a guy from Guyana. So let's let's start setting the context for this case. Like, what were you working on? What were you doing? And because this guy transported hundreds of kilos of Coke, we're talking about millions of dollars in money laundering— but everything has to start off with a lead or a tip or an indication so let's talk about how did this case start for you
0: well you know some information you know comes across our desk in various forms and we started looking into um you know financial movements and through the grand jury subpoena process we started looking at at bank accounts and you know i can i can give you the one the one liner it was you know between you know, April of 2011 to September of 2014, uh, you know, this, this individual had over 12,000 cash deposits totaling $7.5 million, and that is an exorbitant amount of money. That, that's yeah. a clue, right? <laughs> we call yes. that a
1: clue. Hey, but go back. You mentioned something too, and a lot of people don't really understand, I think, the power, especially at the federal level, of a grand jury. What kind of power do you have when you have a grand jury at the federal level? What kind of things can you do? What kind of information can you get?
0: Well, for me specifically in my role, I would, you know, we would go through the grand jury to issue subpoenas to financial institutions um, to to review, uh, you know, bank accounts. So there was definitely, um, you know, we went through the, the, um, through the U.S. Attorney's Office and, and specific attorneys that I worked with and, you know, based on the information we had at the time.
2: And just for our listeners' knowledge, so you can't just go in and throw your federal task force officer badge out there and say, I want to see somebody's records,
0: right? No, no, no. It's it's based on specific information that comes. Yeah, so
2: it's not like in – yeah, so I wanted to bring it out that up. And you have know, to get the bank. Like you can walk in the bank and take a look at anybody's records. It has to go through the judicial system. And
0: no, no. no. You've got to have
1: paper that goes with it. It has right. to be officially uh, approved and uh, somebody has to review yes. it, right? So what was the process of getting a subpoena for you as a – you're not a federal guy, but you've got federal authority now. But what, what process did you go through to get a subpoena to serve on a bank, for example?
0: Yeah, so with, within the within – the, I sat in the U.S. Attorney's Office. We had offices in there with the task force, and we worked with – with a handful of uh, AUSA's, both in the asset money laundering division, um, and through the through the task force, and one of the, the AUSA's, and I, I preface this because I've worked with a, a lot of smart people, and one of the attorneys I worked with, Evan White's, um, he was instrumental in moving a lot of these different cases, and. Uh, another AUSA, Marion Purcell. You know, if if I went through all of the AUSA's I worked on this case, I think I think I would have at least twenty wow. uh, different AUSA's that touch touch this case in, in various in various um, you know regions, whether it be in San Juan or up in New York, um, and you know we and in in the the money laundering division. So. We would we would issue service to to the banks and get records back and and that's when we start creating a financial picture and you know since since you know college I had been dealing with Excel and Excel is a very foreign <laughs> uh, program for a lot of law enforcement but I, I've just seen to 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 gravitate around it and I I tell all of my cases. Well hell, you could do a pivot
1: table in yeah. your yeah. sleep, right? And write a macro. I, I, You're yeah, I fine. get all the
0: questions here in the in the agency. Uh my, my Excel formula screwed up. What am I doing? And it's like a click of a button. But it's uh yeah, so I I I tell my cases through through Excel. And so, you know, for this particular case and building out, you know, hundred uh twelve hundred cash deposits and then following the flow of money. It's, you know, it's over 20 bank accounts and goes to various assets. And um, my when, – when you printed out my schedule, it was, you know, on, on legal paper. It was from, you know, the floor to the ceiling, covered, a you know, a, a door and a half. It was, you know, it was – yeah.
1: So now these – but these cash transactions you're talking about, you said that they occurred basically like within a three-year time yeah, period?
0: Yeah. So it was –
1: so, but what got you started on the case to begin with? I mean, because you you didn't wait three years and then start doing this. This was over a period of three years, right? Well,
0: so so my case actually initiated in, in 2014. So okay. I started building out a picture in, in January of 14 that then we presented it for um, civil seizures. We were going civil, which means we were going after the movement of the money. Um, and at the time, the IRS was re- reviewing a policy change in terms of if we were going to do civil seizures, we actually had to prove that the money came from illegal sources. So, we would do civil seizures not knowing what, what the money was. It could be legal source versus illegal source. Uh, but IRS then had changed their policy in, in the, the late summer of 2014, where they said, okay, you just un- uncovered $6 million of, of structuring but you have to now prove that the money is coming from an illegal source. So we,
1: so how did you go about doing that? Then is that is that where your work then with the DEA comes in? And
0: it's funny because you know you talked about not sharing cases and, and keeping you know cases to yourself because you don't want them to get strong armed. You know I'm doing these cases out of out of a, a, a cubby and and a computer terminal trying to look up you know cash deposit slips and trying to paint my own picture. I was trying to figure out where i was financially before i actually even stepped out and looked at it criminally i did i did surveillance and i did all of these you know criminal you know techniques in in a criminal manner but you know looking for for criminal you know violations but i you know my main thing was telling the financial picture first and then and then figuring it out but when they told me to do legal source i i hooked up with a former irs agent turned HSI agent who's now with the FDIC Pete Chartier and you know I picked his brain because I trusted him and I'd worked with him in the past and he had a good reputation and and we started running with it and you know that's when with HSI most of the HS homeland security investigations to cover the acronym he they cover all the stuff that goes within the border so very early on in, in the investigation you know I I could see that You know, this person owned. um, You know, hangars in Gainesville, Florida, was from Northern New Jersey, and you know, based on you know public information, he's he's a pilot that flies to Guyana, and you know.
1: Now, (laughs) you got a place in Florida. You got New Jersey. Why would you want to fly to Guyana? He's he's originally
0: from Guyana, so he he was. Yeah, I
1: get that, but still, but that's you got to have a I mean, how many stops did you guys I mean, obviously you're tracking him at some point cuz you said you were using surveillance, doing some other stuff. So are you tracking his plane as well too while it's in, you know, watching him go from uh uh Florida to New Jersey or whatever the yeah, guy so, to Guyana? so
0: it, it's interesting. All all of my different cases that I've worked over the years, I've learned, you know, something new and and <laughs> this one is now learning about the air air plane industry and, you know, who to contact to get on a regional airport and who, like, what does a, a charter 91 mean or a 135 or, you know, th- there was a learning curve into this one that I really needed a lot of different help on once we started branching out into it. So then, you know, with, with Pete and I, um, you know, I've never wasn't involved in a secondary I didn't even know what a secondary was but that's you know when you're you have a warrantless search for somebody that's coming across the border or you know leaving leaving the border so you know we had learned that that you know when he would fly he would stop in Puerto Rico to refuel and then that would be his border exit Puerto Rico then to go to Guyana and so you know we we ended up performing a secondary um you know search on him and it – when when that was done, I was working with with Peach Yard here at Homeland Security, and he was helping me coordinate with Homeland Security down in Puerto Rico and CBB, Custom Border Patrol. And, you know, I worked with, uh, you know, another agent, Rika Davis, and there's another agent down there, Abel Nasser, who's like a plane um, – you know, guru knows everything about, you know, planes and mechanics. And, and let me take a step back. I actually reached out to FAA to kind of figure out, okay, what do I need to learn about this thing? And I, and I came across an agent, Steve Tuckerman and he was aces. Steve was, you know, an investigator within uh, the FAA and, and, you know, I cold called them <laughs> kind of what I would have done with, with, uh, you know, Tuckman sports enterprises back in your sports yeah, marketing exactly.
1: days. Hi, ah, you don't know me, but I've got an offer. <laughs> right, you can't Right. Refuse. And so,
0: you know, now I'm picking his brain and, and he's telling what I, what I need to do and getting blue ribbon copies. Like who, what the hell is a blue ribbon copy? It, you know, it's the official copy of, of, of a plane record or a plane, you know, transfer. And that's something you and need is if you were going to seize a plane. And, and so, you know, we started then as this team, Going through and now tr- starting to track the f- the flights of of this person, and there's another agency that I didn't know about that's called AMOC Air Marine Operations Center, and they track the movement of planes and 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 marine operations. And so now I'm working with you know different investigators out in in um, air marine operations. There's a guy John Shulman, who was out there, who was Aces, and and. Again, now I'm, I'm, you know, we're we're building this case into now following him, and ultimately it leads to. I was actually volunteer football coaching, and it was it was the championship game for this team, um, and I'm on the sidelines, but yet I'm on the phone with the team now in San Juan that is telling me we just found six hundred and twenty thousand dollars stuff and stuffed in this plane that's heading now south to Guyana, and so it's like, okay, what? <laughs> This adds a whole nother wrinkle because all we saw was money being deposited, and now we see money being bulk cash smuggled, and and so. Hey,
1: and real quickly too, for folks that are wondering, um, Guyana is right next to Venezuela, so you know it's not. You, some people might think, oh, it's way out there, but really, it's a short hop from Florida to Puerto Rico, Puerto mm-hmm. Rico to Guyana. And tell everybody when you say secondary, why is it that the United States, San Juan, or Puerto Rico is a uh, U.S. Mm-hmm. territory? You know, you don't have to have a warrant when you're at the border, when you're folks like CBP and Homeland Security, because um, it's entry or exit from a country and warrants don't apply, right?
0: Yeah. So, so it's, it's, I mean, they, they still, in my experience with the secondary, there's a reason for, for the secondary there's, you know, underlying, you know, look at all this money that's being moved. Look at, you know, what, what's going on. Um and yeah, it's
1: not like they're just walking down the line. Going, yeah, Every third exactly. person, we're just going to search yeah. you. They're looking for right, indicators, right?
0: Exactly. And, and so, you know, there was CMR C, CMIRs that were filled out um that were were bogus because obviously you got caught with six hundred twenty thousand. It
1: didn't account for six hundred twenty thousand no, dollars, no. did it?
0: And it's funny because the other pilot who who was with with him, <laughs> his wife trained police dogs trained canines and when he saw the dog alert to the bags he knew something was up mm-hmm. and you know he's like what the hell is going on and sure enough yeah. so
1: this other guy had no clue what was no. going on
0: no as everything was under you know in in, in the experience in the this investigation it was like probably a lot of um red flags but nobody wanted to explore the red flags you know, the, the, we learned that... Because it would
1: interrupt the gravy train that they well, were getting we, paid. Well, we
0: learned that, you know, the business itself had no business. Like there was no, and I, you know I talked about this this 135. The 135 is the ability to, to be a taxi in the sky. So there's a lot of rules with FAA that you have to go and, and show that you are, you know, maintaining the plane and doing all these things correctly and, and that you're taking a fee to fly people around. Well, when, when you go to register the flight, they're not, none of his flights were registered as 135s, they were all registered as 91s, which means it's a private flight. So he's flying privately. And when we interviewed the bookkeeper, she said, I don't know how we stated business. He, he didn't have any paid flights in, in 14, he had maybe three in 13, but you know, anytime they needed money, they would call him up and he would just deposit money into the accounts to cover fuel, maintenance, salaries, whatever. And so then now as, as once, you know, once we did the secondary and he got charged with bulk cash smuggling, now we're moving into, okay, let's start doing our interviews and and trying to figure out what, what is this story that's going on. And we're starting to hear from the bookkeeper, former business partners. Um, You know, he had told everybody that he made money selling a trucking company. And when we interviewed the trucking company, there was nothing you know, he he took a loss on the sale, or or you know, very minimal, uh, gain on 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 the sale. So that blew his story right out of the water. And then, you know, we're we're interviewing other business partners and learning that he's structuring into their accounts too. So we're starting now to paint a financial picture that instead of the seven point five million that we see in the bank accounts, it actually bumped up to ten point two in cash that he had moved through various means one of the bigger pieces was is, is he had political connections in guyana that allowed him to get state uh, access to the state airport and he built a hangar uh you know a, a, a almost two million dollar hangar on state property in guyana and you know when we interviewed some of the pilots they would say well he, there was no reason, there's no business out of Guyana where you're going to fly in and out of Guyana. And we learned that he was trying to uh, build a jet medevac business. And one of the pilots says, well, that's a very easy way to get through customs because in a medevac business, you're transferring people in an emergency. And the, the thought is maybe you might be able to get through customs easier with an emergency on board. So who knows what that would have left to if, if he got into that. And then he was buying build, uh, business properties up in Stewart, near Stewart International Airport, which was one of his hubs. And it was a, secu- a secluded business property. It was like it was a garage that you could pull into the bay, off the street in the middle of nowhere and pull out of the bay. So if you needed to transport drugs or cash, that was a perfect location to, to do that. So he was like setting himself up in, in my opinion, to, to to do all these different things. And, you know, when the border stopped happened, it all came crashing down. And, you know, then. Well,
1: let's let's back up from that border stop too, because we also talked about, let's talk about how you developed the information about, how did you know he was transporting cocaine?
0: So- Th- through the course of the investigation, once we once we rang the bell and there was a the press releases on um, on the pilot that was arrested in San Juan, moving six hundred and twenty thousand dollars, it was big news in Guyana. Um, it you know it, it there was some headlines and <laughs> a, a parallel investment came came out of it in Rochester, New York. And there was a case in Rochester that, you know, I worked with a, a bunch of different people up there. Um, Jimmy Schmitz, which so I think I... The actor? No, no, no. But, so, <laughs> I was
1: going to say, this sounds like Law & Order. Were you in a Law & Order so, episode so, up there? So
0: they were running like a whole nother street level case and working up the mountain towards their source of supply. And after the border stop information came out that the the supply was the pilot and he ultimately got indicted for cocaine charges out of the western district of new york and then that kind of we had the money side of it they had the drug side of it and you know we had two different cooperators that actually testified at trial to talk about his involvement in drugs And through the course of this Rochester investigation, they had a search warrant that uncovered 17 kilos of cocaine, um, you know, cash and, and multiple arrests and firearms and all this other stuff. And so then from from that, it kind of morphed. Now I had the DEA on board. So let me back up a little bit when 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 we did the border stop and came up with the 620 and we're starting to see, you know, manifests of the plane. And now we're starting to paint pictures of people that might have been traveling with him based on witness interviews, based on on, you know, manifests, what have you. Um, we now have a drug angle that we now exploit using D agents out of New York. So, you know, I worked with an agent, Ken Kameninsky, who's I, I think now out of, out of Philly and, you know, Carolyn Miller. And they started exploiting the drug angle on their end. And, you know, they have access to a whole nother level of databases and, and they started running with it. And that's when they stumble on to, um, you know, the, the Westchester, the Westchester case. So, you know, Jim, Jim Schmitz and Malcolm Van, Van Alstine, who are they have their own task force up in, in Rochester and they climb the ladder. And like I said, it ultimately leads to a source of supply That's a pilot that was arrested with six hundred and twenty thousand dollars.
1: So until the time you made the arrest, or, you know, this with the 620, you had no idea about those other investigations, right? No,
0: no, no. I was strictly, you know, financial, looking at the movement of cash, the structuring of cash. And listen, there wasn't you could speculate all you wanted flights coming out of Guyana out of South America. I mean, the writing was on the wall that this was drugs, but you know, until, until I hooked up with the DEA and really saw, you know, the different pieces that were coming out of that. And then, you know, the, 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 you know, the cooperators that testified at trial that painted that whole picture of, you know, we had, both ends of the timing of the cash. We had a cooperative that talked about how he got involved in, in, you know, first bringing cocaine on private planes. And then we had a cop, a cooperator at the end who was involved in in the 17 kilos that were found in, in the search warrant. Um, So, you know, with those two cooperators, they painted a complete picture of, of how, uh you know he got into the movement of you know C- cape and and where the money came from and how the money was delivered and how it was packaged and 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 you know it, it, it at trial you know it was a a two week long trial and and you know they like i said they painted this whole picture as to how
2: now the, the aircraft that he was using these weren't just twin engines were they? these are very nice jet planes right
0: yeah again i uh lear jets um he had actually, in his money laundering scheme, he had purchased his first first jet. And you know, when you're earning cash and you're spending it now on fuel and maintenance and pay off the, the plane, now you're spending cash to pay off the previous owner of the hangars, and you're you're depositing cash and moving it away. It all kind of stems now from from this cash, and it, it dirties up everything that he's he's touching. So he actually had three planes. Um, one of which was was seized at the border for the border stop. then another one that was seized um we seized that was his main plane that was actually being main it was, it was um it was being fixed when he was flying the the second plane and then we seized a third plane which was a plane that we saw him purchase sourced with the drug cash um but it was a plane that he was gonna dump more money into maintaining it and getting it up to you know up to speed and that was you know a a bigger a bigger plane a challenger i think it was
1: Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two, as always, comes out on Thursday. In the meantime, check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast, on Facebook, at the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be, got to be on Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of good stuff, including... If you are at the right level, Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne, we have just released Part 1, Episode 1 of The Real DEA Narcos talking about the real DEA Narcos, Cali Edition. Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell go in-depth 16 hours about how they took down the Cali cartel. Information you will not hear anywhere else in the world, not on Netflix, not anywhere, not in a book, only right here on Game of Crimes at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, also go check out our webpage, Podcast.com. We've got the latest merch, pictures for every episode that we put up, books that our guests write. We only put up books that they write. We put them up there. So we thank you once again for being a player in the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes.